the last couple of days. Um, it's been wonderful to have interviews with everyone as they're coming into the end of this retreat. Many people are really appreciating uh, that, in a certain sense, um, it becomes clear that there isn't a particular thing to get or state to have or experience to experience, but just really the capacity to be with what's happening, to hold it in a way that doesn't cling, doesn't struggle. <coughs> There's a certain ease, just rest, as Joseph was saying last night, let experience come and go. And at the same time people are saying, I really appreciate that you've been saying strive. So funny to discover that I apparently have said strive quite a lot. (laughs) It's not the image that I have of myself. Usually people say, oh, you know, such a grandmotherly image. Turns out that I said a lot of strive. Uh, So I wanted to say that I think that they're really not contradictory ways of thinking about practice, that I'm completely zealous about wanting to see clearly, wanting to understand, and that I think that there's a way of doing that that's just right here, that we can strive, really, to be just right here. One of the... um, lines that's been in my mind quite a lot in this last year is I read, I think in Smithsonian Magazine, that um, Paul Revere gave his wife a wedding ring in which he had inscribed the words, live contented. And I thought, that's really lovely. It's like, it's an instruction. Live contented. It's like one of my best instructions is that Sharon said to me years ago. Remember I told you that? be happy. Imagine if people gave us those instructions when we were growing up and they said, be happy and live contented. Because not only is it an instruction, but it gives the possibility that you could do that. Life is difficult. That Buddha said the same thing. That really is the Four Noble Truths. Life is very difficult, inevitably painful. that the pain brings suffering if we cling and struggle with stuff we can't change, but that it's possible to live contented. Not free of pain, but contented and wise. And you think about when I read about that in the wedding ring, I thought, well, that's not a very romantic thing to say in a wedding ring. You normally say, I'm going to love you forever or something or other. But actually, live contented is a great thing to say. It would be a wonderful thing if we... Each of us had learned that when we were young, that you could live contented, that you could strive to live contented. So I thought what I would talk about, since that seems somewhat paradoxical, is that I don't think they are paradoxical, and I think that there are understandings that we can balance with each other. And I wanted to talk a little bit about balance in practice. Balance is a great word. Think about mindfulness being a kind of balance. Remember the other night we talked about the seven factors of enlightenment. We talked about the three rousing factors and the three composing factors. And that, in a sense, you could see them and understand them and cultivate them as six different qualities of consciousness. And 
that they balanced each other and that mindfulness came out to be the balanced recognition of this moment. I love to think about that. What's the balanced recognition of this moment? Seeing it clearly, not only understanding what's happening, but understanding, including the understanding of this is my response to it, this is the response of the heart, and with enough balance to know this is the wise action response, if there's an action response that's wise. So actually I think of it as three parts. What's happening, including what's true in my response of the heart to what's happening, and what's the wise response to it. It's a sense in which uh, mindfulness seems to me to be wisdom, wise behavior. So I thought I would start by um, telling you two Joseph stories, just because it's coming to the end of a retreat. One of the things that I like to do is uh, give a tribute to my teachers, who I love. So I thought I would tell you two very good stories of two very good things that he taught me in the course of my practice. So one of them is the universal instruction, or the universal answer to all questions. Uh, You know that in a hotel, they give you a key to your particular room, and your key will not open other people's rooms. But somewhere there's a custodian for that hotel who has a universal key that will open all the rooms. So this is the universal answer to all the questions. You know, when people come for interviews, they say, should I walk more or sit more or eat more or sleep more or do more mindfulness or do more metta or whatever it is? This is the universal answer. If I say that enough, everybody will really get it interested by the time I say the answer. (laughs) But it is the universal answer. So many years ago, and I was here practicing, and it was one of those times when my practice was going in a way that I really liked. There were times that it's really going in a way that you really like. And I was clear, and I was happy, and I was delighted with what I was seeing about the nature of how things are. And I had a whole schedule about my day. I got up at a certain time, I had my one cup of coffee at a certain time, I ate just certain amounts of food that I knew would be enough so that I'd be awake and alert, but not so full that I would be sleepy and cloudy. I exactly had my whole schedule figured out when I walked, when I sat, how long I walked, how long I sat, but everything was in place. And I'm just going along enjoying this. And suddenly there was a uh, note up on the bulletin board. And it said, um, Dear yogis, tomorrow is Oxfam day. And if you want to fast all day, we will give the money that we save for your meals to Oxfam for a contribution. You don't have to do it, but if you want to, sign up here or if you don't want to sign up here. And mostly people were going to fast. And fasting is not a problem for me. I can fast without too much difficulty. In my regular life, I sometimes fast. But I had everything so nicely organized. (laughs) Eat at this time, have a cup of coffee at this time, eat that much at another time. And I was really attached to my practice continuing along as clear and as balanced as I thought it was. All of a sudden, fast. What if I don't feel good? 
What if I'm uncomfortable? What if I lose all this mindfulness and composure and concentration? And so I went to see Joseph for my interview with him, and I told him my whole story, just what I just told to you, and I said, what should I do? <laughs> and he said, this is the universal question. <laughs> He's waiting to see what he said. <laughs> he said, do whatever you need to do to stay balanced. That actually is, I think, the best possible answer, and it is the universal answer to all of those yogi questions, what should I do now? Do whatever you need to do to stay balanced. It's actually a very good answer, not only for yogi questions, but for all questions. Very good answer for life as well. Which comes to the other Joseph story, which is a good story to tell near the end of a retreat, because people are thinking about uh, here I have been living in this consciousness and in this way of practicing and now each of us is going to go out in the world and pick up the threads of our life story and continue with them each of us to our own story the story did not change probably it didn't probably it's exactly as you left it when you came and you have to pick it up and carry it on again so it's important to think about that as we come to the end and this is the other story was a time in my practice where um, it was just so clear to me about how impermanent things were. Just as Joseph was talking last night, just so clear that part of the vision of impermanence is really the non-substantiality of everything. Everything comes and goes and has really nothing about it that's substantial. Not only thoughts or feelings, but our stories, our dramas, our lives, really not substantial, any of it. And there's a way in practice where sometimes you see things arising and passing away. And all I could see at that point was how things were passing away. That was what the piece of it that I seemed to see. And whatever I saw looked like that. I saw the leaves on the trees were turning and falling. Uh, or the days were ending, or whatever it was, my experience was entirely focused on the passing away of things, on the really empty nature, nothing endures. It was as if um, Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz puts on green glasses and everything looks green. I had on the insubstantiality glasses. Everything looked empty. And I came to see him uh, in an interview and I reported my experience and uh, just my profound awareness of that there isn't anything substantial, nothing to grasp onto, nothing to push away, nothing to hope for, that it's all one big shadow boxing with ghosts, nothing there. And I said, I see this, and he said, yes, and I said this, and he said, yes, and I said this, and I said, yes so to speak, agreeing with my vision. And then I got up to leave. I was pretty bleak about it all. And I uh, had my hand on the doorknob, just ready to go out, and he said, and this was very wise, he said, be very careful, Sylvia, not to let this understanding of emptiness 
condition and aversion to life experience. It's a hugely important line. So I said in the most proper yogi-like way, thank you very much. And uh, <laughs> I went out the door and closed it. And then I thought to myself, how should I do that? How should I cause it not to condition an aversion to life experience? Because I was feeling at that point very unhappy about life experience. You can't grab it, you can't hold on to it, you can't push it away. As a matter of fact, it's all empty. It really is a great dance with ghosts on that level. So I want to talk about, first of all, I want to talk about how the end of that, so you might be thinking, so how did you get past that? There's a period of time when everything was fading away. I remember during that same period, I went to Hawaii with my husband on a holiday. So I'm supposed to have a romantic holiday. People are sitting on the beach on an outdoor beach cafe and uh, looking at the sun setting in the Pacific. And it's beautiful. Everybody probably saying romantic things to each other. I don't know what they're saying, but I am watching the same beautiful sunset that everybody else is watching. And I'm completely dissolved in dismay about another day is ending. <laughs> Passing away. I really feel bad when I think about the kinds of, when you're in relationship that you go through these periods and your person has to deal with your having an anatta period and they've taken you on a romantic vacation in Hawaii and it does not exactly fit together. There's a way in which everything really is of its own, empty of meaning, but we imbue it with meaning. And there's something amazing about the experience of being human where we imbue. We have nervous systems, we have emotional systems. Things become dear to us, even that we know that they're insubstantial. And we imbue them with meaning. And it seems to me very important feels to me very important to be able to hold both truths. I really want my relationships to feel meaningful to me because here I am. Or even if I think, well, here I am and we know that there isn't any I who's here. Nevertheless, relational incarnate experience is unfolding without an I. Relational incarnate experience is unfolding with emotions that arise and pass away. So I want to imbue it with meaning and live it as if it's real and significant. And I want to know at the same time, not separate from or not apart from or not in opposition to, I need to know at the same time that it's really empty and insubstantial. And I actually think they both support each other. Be very hard to deal with the pains of emotional life, relational life, if I didn't have that other perspective. And if I only had that other perspective, I wouldn't be able to live in a relational life, or it wouldn't be very significant to me. One time, some years ago, I guess, I don't know how many years ago, it was a period of time that uh, uh, both my husband and I were tremendously interested 
in a particular teacher who had been a student of Ramana Maharshi. So much of the teachings of this teacher were on the emptiness aspect of experience as opposed to the form aspect of experience. And in the course of some conversation one day at, at home with my husband, something had happened. One of my daughters had done something that I, my feelings had been hurt about. So I said to him, we were just alone, the two of us, and I said, I'm so mad at Emmy for having done X or Y, whatever it was. And he said in his best Ramana Maharshi way, where is the I that's angry? <laughs> So I said, don't give me that guff about where it's <laughs> You and I both know that there is no I that is angry. There's no I here and there's no I in Emmy that I'm angry at. Nevertheless, anger has arisen. <laughs> it doesn't belong to anyone and it will pass, but currently it is here. <laughs> And I'm talking about it. <laughs> and it's a, it's a dance. It's a balance. What's really helpful to me when anger arises, I was talking to somebody today, somebody here speaks Japanese fluently. I only know a little bit of Japanese, but I know enough to really be impressed by the fact that it's a language where people don't use pronouns very much. They use pronouns if they have to say exactly who you're talking to, but by and large, the, the, the structure of the language is verbs. Eating is happening, eating happened. You don't say who's doing it. Thinking is happening, thinking happened. Liking is happening, liking happened. Disliking is happening, disliking happened. It's a very wise language. It doesn't belong to anybody. I thought, boy, I really like that. But we have always often the sense that someone owns that feeling. It's very helpful for me to know that no, that I don't own that feeling. I have feelings. I have feelings all the time. Or feelings exist all the time. There isn't an I who has them. But the feelings exist. Awareness of the feelings exist. And it's extremely helpful for me to know that they will not be permanent. That they last. That they do not last. And that if I didn't know that, there would be a big possibility that I would construct a big story about it. And in constructing this big story about it, I would cause it to last, and I would have a lot more suffering around it. When a disagreeable feeling is present, suffering exists. The sooner it's not there, the sooner suffering isn't there. The less I identify with the feeling and make up a big further story about it, the sooner it will pass. So to be able to say both are true, everything is true, they come and they go feelings. I have a friend who once um, had a wonderful analogy for it. I've thought about it a lot. He said, suppose you went into a movie and uh, turned out to be a terrifying movie. How many people here remember Janet Lee in Psycho? Remember that? In the first two minutes of the movie, there's a gruesome murder that happens. So he said, suppose you go to a movie and it's psycho, gruesome murder happens, and you say to your friend that you've come with, this is it, I'm out of here, this is horrible. And you stand up in your seat, and your friend puts his hand on you and says, wait a minute, it's only a movie. 
You say, oh, right, it's only a movie. So you sit back, back down. And then at 30-second intervals, friend taps you and says, listen, it's only a movie. Keep in mind, it's only a movie. <laughs> 30 seconds later, it's a movie. Don't forget it's a movie. Meantime, after a while, you say, cut it out. I'm trying to avoid, uh, enjoy this movie. <laughs> so that somewhere between enjoying the movie and being terrified by it is where we have to live. It is only a movie. But here we are. I was thinking about uh, the people I know who are in theater. And... Uh, I often have the feeling that we're all in theater, aren't we? It's a, it's a great story and an amazing, amazing... Sometimes I look at my life and I think Central Casting has done such an amazing job. Look at these, look at these folks that are in the same play with me. And we all know what lines to say. We make them up. It's kind of improvisational theater. But nevertheless, we know what to improvise in what certain circumstance. We know what costume to put on for which particular play. I think to myself, I, since I come here several times a year to teach, I leave a box of clothing here so that I don't have to bring it back and forth on the West Coast because there's different weather. Not only different weather, but there's a kind of clothing that people wear at retreats that they don't wear other places. <laughs> so, so I have a box of my costume for this particular event that stays here. And then I come here and I put on those costumes and I say the appropriate things for here and then I go other places and I put on costumes for there. And I, I feel as if one of the things that... Uh, makes me feel good about my comfort level in life as I remember which costume to wear in which place and what sort of lines to improvise under what circumstances. But in a certain sense, it's all theater, and we will all say our lines. One of the things that uh, comes up for me often in uh, retreats, it's happened so many times now, the, if I tell you the story, you'll see my, my dramatic flair. If you haven't already seen my dramatic play, you'll now see the dramatic flair. It's what I think of as the Macbeth moment of my practice. But it happens so frequently that I recognize it. It's a predictable event in a meditation retreat. Maybe you had it here. And uh, uh, it took me a while, and I realized what it is is a manifestation of doubt. It's a doubt attack. And this is how it happens. I'd be practicing the way, really into it, and with a lot of faith. This is exactly where I want to be. This is the sanest way to behave. It's the only way to wake up. And then all of a sudden, one day, I'll be walking or eating or something, and usually walking. I'll be walking back and forth, and I'll see other people walking back and forth, probably in that slow kind of way that we walk. And suddenly, out of nowhere, I'll hear in my mind, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow <laughs> creeps in its petty pace, and all our yesterdays have lighted fools away to dusty death. Do you not recognize this? Out, out, brief candle, life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage. You remember this? It's a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. So I go through to the end of that whole thing, and I walk a little bit, and then it would start again. Tomorrow, 
<laughs> one of the problems of having memorized long soliloquies is that once they start, they get a toehold in the mind, they go on and on. And then you start to believe it and demoralize yourself. And it goes down and pure and down and pure. And it goes on and on. And finally, I realized what it is, is a doubt attack. The mind has kind of slipped off. On a certain level, it is full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. On that level. On the level at which we have an emotional system, on the level at which we hold things dear, it makes a difference and it is significant. What normally happens to me, because it goes on and on and on, the doubt attack, the Macbeth moment, is that suddenly it'll seem to me that it's really funny. I laugh, look at everybody strutting and fretting, I think what's going on with them, and then I laugh about it, and then it goes away, and then the doubt has passed, and I know that we're exactly in the right place, and I'm exactly in the right place. Somehow, to keep a balance. It is theater, but it's happening. And so what's a wise way to be in this theater? If you think about the movie analogy, sometimes my friends saying, you know, it's only a movie, it's only a movie. Sometimes we can change our movie. Sometimes we get cast in a play Say so this is a very bad play. I signed up for a bad play, it's not working out well. Sometimes we can change. We can get another part, another play. It's a really an important kind of a, a thing to think about that I can't get another body, can't get another life, can't get another personality. I thought I could, by the way. I remember one time, sometime early in my meditation career, uh, I was practicing for some period of time and I get quieter obviously when I'm practicing and I began to think about how I am. I had a, a vision of myself in my not retreat mode and I began to seem to me, me so gross, so dramatic, hysterical, flair. And I began to seem very overblown. I thought, Sylvia, you can't do anything like mildly. Everything has to be a dramatic story. I remember seeing my friend Jack in an interview, and I said, you know, I decided that personality that I have of make everything into such a big deal, I said, I don't like it. It's sort of vulgar, crass, gross. (laughs) So when I leave here, I'm not going to do that anymore. This is one of his great words of wisdom. He said, I don't know. He said, I think we get issued one body and one personality for the trip. (laughs) And I think we do, more or less, get issued one body and one personality. I can't get another body. And my personality is my personality. Sometimes we get a story that we can't change. Sometimes we can change our story. Say, whoops, I made a mistake. I need to change my story, and we can. I think we have more opportunity these days to change stories than maybe was possible in former generations. I don't know that my grandparents could have changed their story as easily as we can. We have lots of opportunities to rethink. I I meet people in interviews and they say, I'm going to make a career change, or 
going to take a year off and practice. We have lots of more opportunities, I think, happily, than maybe our parents or our grandparents did. And so when we think about accommodating to what is, some things we can change. So not to make it sound like the response to knowing what is is always to just accommodate it. Sometimes it's accommodated and make a change. Sometimes we can't make a change. We get an illness we can't change, we get a loss we can't change. We're in a situation that we cannot change that is painful to us. Then what we can change is our heart, and that's what I think this practice does. Both through the insights that there's a way to hold this where it's not quite so gripping, also, in some way, quite through the experience of just holding our pain, holding our awareness while we're here, and seeing that we can do it. I was watching people at the end of the Metta retreat, at the end of the, some people have been here all this time, and some people were going home at the end of the Metta retreat. I was sitting up here and Joseph was talking and giving the going home talk and I was listening to him a little bit and I was looking at the people here who had been sitting for a week and were going home and many of whom I knew their story at that time because people tell their story. And I was thinking about the numbers of stories I knew that required decisions. People said, I have this and this difficult situation in my life and I have to do A or B or I, I have this in this difficult situation and I can't do A or B I have to do C it's the only thing I can do it's really painful and everybody I looked at looked better to me than they had a week before everybody looked uh, softer I looked at even the way that they were sitting on the sofas people start out sitting up on the zafus, and I watched the last day. People are lying on the zafus, leaning on the zafus, and lounging. And I thought that's that's really wonderful. That one of the things that we do here is we back up off our life, and we see it in a larger perspective. We see it in a perspective that gets bigger and allows us to hold it. One way that the smallness or the insubstantiality or the interconnectedness of all of our lives, interconnected in a larger sense than the way in which we feel our personal drama right up close, uh, occurs to me when I think about the people, the astronauts who went and walked on the moon, that all of them came back and said that they had a different sense of life experience that somehow when you get far enough away and see just, it's amazing, look at all that stuff happening. Here's a ball, a rock hanging in the middle of vast space. Here's a rock, it's a colorful rock and it's carrying on, hanging in the middle of vast space all by itself, turning and turning and turning. And people are getting born and dying, everything's getting born and dying. And from the perspective of another vantage point that seems not only 
All right, it seems exactly right. Things get born and things die. Transient are all conditioned things. That very insight of the Buddha about everything comes and goes and is essentially insubstantial seems quite wonderful, perfect, not a problem from so far away. And yet, as we come back, if you can imagine, there's a, uh, an exhibit in one of the Smithsonian's in Washington where you start out with a video where you see yourself on a beach right here, and then you're 10 feet away, and then you're 100 feet away, and then you're 100 times 100 feet away, and further and further and further and further and further, until you get a cosmic view, and then you come way back down. I think about the further and further and further away that we get from our lives, the less the pull of our personal drama has, and the more extraordinary the whole thing becomes. Look at that. That's life happening. It's just the way it is. It's life happening. It's not even fine or not fine. It's just what's happening. Coming and going, arising and passing away. And then the nearer we come to it, I think it somehow has to do with our emotional strands, our affiliative connections. All of a sudden, not only gets nearer, it gets realer and more significant. Sometimes it happens to me on retreat, maybe it happened to you as well, that I'll suddenly think about my family and they'll seem so remote to me. I don't really miss them. That actually they don't seem so real to me sometimes. I first realized that, though, whoa, it means I don't like them. It doesn't mean that at all. It's just that the mind gets a little bit unhooked from the closeness of the drama. It holds it a little bit looser. Comes back, it's right back in the drama. And it's not, one isn't righter than the other. It's just two ways to hold it. When I'm far away on the other side of the world, I don't read the newspaper from the United States because they're not available. And I don't miss them. It doesn't seem so compelling. I come back, I do. That significance comes and goes, I think, with closeness to it. And one way isn't right and one way isn't wrong. It's just to think about the fact that we can hold things in different ways. There's a way in which when I had that period of time when I saw how everything was so empty and so disappearing, I worried that it would end up meaning that nothing mattered at all. Actually, I think the opposite happened. I think that the insight of the ephemeral nature of things how fleeting all experience is. It's one of the things that leads me to cherish it very much, and to make sure that I'm here for this moment of experience. Not waiting for a better moment of experience or another moment of experience or a more significant one, because there isn't any time but now. I think instead of nothing matters, which is what I worried about, it turned out that everything mattered, right now. 
had an interesting experience this morning. I drove over to the study center uh, very early in the morning because I had some book over there that I needed. And it was um, just as the sun was coming up. And the snow looked pink. It was really beautiful. And uh, I'm really enjoying the snow because we don't have snow in California. So it really was beautiful. And I remember a line from an A. E. Hausman poem called The Cherry Tree that I memorized again. You see, I spent much of my teenage years memorizing poetry that replays itself in meditation retreats. There's a Hausman poem that talks about uh, a cherry tree in bloom in, uh, in the spring and how beautiful it was, is. And uh, I remember being so impressed with it. Do you know that poem? talks about now of my three score years and ten, twenty will not come again and take from seventy springs a score, it only leaves me fifty more. You know that poem? And since to love and since to look at things in bloom, fifty springs is little room. About the woodland I will go to see the cherry hung with snow. And I loved that when I was young. I thought about it, it was so meaningful to me. For years I would tell people that's my favorite poem. So meaningful. And this morning I was driving over to the study center and I saw the birch trees hung with snow. And I thought about the Hausman poem. And it didn't seem exactly as right to me as it did before. Because uh, I had the sense in the poem, um, I'll go out now and look for cherry trees with snow because 50 isn't enough. I thought that's... That's more grasping than I feel. You know, I looked at the trees this morning and I thought, I'm happy I'm with these trees now. But Hausman was looking for extra. There isn't any extra. <laughs> Don't you think so? I just got that this morning. I just got that this morning. That there isn't a moment that's better than now. There isn't uh, the cherry tree in the spring and the cherry tree in the winter isn't better than the cherry tree in the summer or in the spring or some other time or in the fall. And that if we're looking for something special, then we have to wait for the spring or the winter when it has snow or it has blossoms. And every moment is a cherry tree if you're looking at it. it seemed quite right this morning. I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, going home and balancing retreat practice with uh, life practice. Sometimes when people come in an interview, they say, I'm so embarrassed. I was here last year, and you taught me last year, and I haven't practiced since last year. And I really, you know, I, I hear it when people say that, because what I'm sure they mean is I didn't sit on my zafu since last year. Because I can't imagine that they mean I didn't try to be attentive for a moment since last year. I didn't pay attention for a whole year. Or I didn't try to compose myself. Or I didn't try to stay balanced and alert. When people say to me, what, do you pra what is your practice? I tell them I'm practicing kindness and compassion. And then maybe we talk about the techniques that you use. Or I tell them I practice balanced alertness or something. But I don't tell them I sit on the zafu, I don't tell them I watch my breath, 
I do all those things. I don't tell them I do this particular walking practice. Those are the techniques that I do, but that's not the practice. Being mindful is paying attention in a balanced and composed way. And we could be practicing, or we should be practicing all the time. So that this is a different mode of practice. It's certainly more slowed down, certainly more focused, certainly wonderful and desirable. I invite you, really implore is too strong of a word, but really want to tell you that it's an incomparable gift to be able to practice in this way. Certainly to have been introduced to this practice and to have been able to practice it in this way is a great gift of my life. And it's another mode from being mindful in everyday life. So I really don't want you as you go home to be thinking, oh dear, I didn't quite get enough or learn enough and now I have to wait for the next retreat. I'd like you to think of life as a long retreat that we do in different positions and at different speeds, but that there isn't a moment in which we should not be practicing mindfulness. And then some people say, how much mindfulness should I practice and how much metta should I practice? What percent of my practice should be metta and what percentage should be mindful? So I want to tell you that 100% of your practice should be mindful and 100% should be metta. And that is not any kind of a contradiction in terms because I don't think that there's a way to be mindful in a not metta mode. That really, if you think about mindfulness as the balanced appreciation of each moment of experience, we really cannot maintain that kind of balance unless we are quite prepared to forgive the moment and accept the moment and acknowledge it with balance and with an open heart. doesn't mean liking it any more than we are obliged to like our enemy in metta practice. Say, this is a very disagreeable person. This is a person who's caused me a lot of pain or with whom I felt a lot of pain in my life. It's a person whose behavior is completely unacceptable to me. But I can maintain a certain composure about the heart, and I don't need to wish them ill, because wishing them ill causes me pain. So there isn't a single way to do mindfulness practice without that same mode of the heart towards each moment of experience. There are moments that happen that we like very much. They're like our best friends. In metta practice, when your best friend arises in the mind, you say, oh, wonderful, this is so easy. I really have only good feelings towards you. No hesitation in allowing this image in this heart space. But then here comes somebody else. Here comes a difficult moment in practice say, uh-oh, here comes this moment. This is the one moment that I don't want to have. This is the memory I don't want to have. This is the feeling I don't want to have. This is the experience I don't want to have. But here it is. And really, the, the if it's really a mindful moment, then it's a balanced and an open moment. It's a moment. It's not pleasant. I don't like it. But here it is. And it's gone. 
Here's another moment. And don't like this one either. Here's another one. I do like this one. It's also God. Everything comes and goes. And a really balanced practice has an open-hearted appreciation of each moment that arrives. It's as if we are friendly to each moment. Don't have to invite it to stay. In fact, we shouldn't. First of all, we can't. <laughs> Nothing stays. But with that piece of wisdom, with that recollection, with that reflection, with that knowledge, that understanding, we can, in fact, be open-hearted to the moment. Wow, this is a moment that I didn't feel like having, but here it is, which comes from a certain amount of wisdom about emptiness and about impermanence. won't be here forever. Can't even do metta practice without being mindful. It's the backside of what we were just thinking about. People say, you know, I was doing metta, I was making these resolves and wishing well to my best beloved and to my benefactor and even to neutral people. And then I tried so-and-so and all of a sudden this feelings of anger arose and feelings of fear arose and memories arose and I opened my eyes because I became frightened and I became confused and I lost my concentration. And then I made a decision to go back and start again with my benefactor to wish myself up. All of those are moments of mindful recognition of the truth of the moment. You say, well, I lost it, but we can't lose it. I say, okay, in this moment, I know this happened, I know this happened, I know this happened, and then I wish myself well, which is just the continuation of an open-hearted response to the moment. If you think about fundamentally mindfulness practice and metta practice, being an open-hearted appreciation of the moment, then they seem quite the same to me. And if you think about that the I'm trying to find another word other than the fruits of metta practice or the goal of metta practice um, because I, I want to do it without a striving and I want to do it without an overtime. The revelation of both metta practice and of mindfulness practice is that all the while um, peacefulness and happiness and open-heartedness and compassionate, complete responsiveness and mudita and sympathetic joy responsiveness are in fact the context of the heart that was here all the time and that are revealed both in mindfulness practice and in metta practice then they're not that different from each other they are certainly different techniques so that just as I might tell people some of the techniques that I use are sitting and being in touch with body sensations and some of the techniques I use are walking and being in touch with body sensations and some of the techniques I use are appreciating my food with all my senses and some of the techniques I use are mental noting some of the techniques I use are the making of certain resolves for the well-being of particular beings or all beings they're just all techniques and what we are practicing fundamentally is the open-hearted response to every moment which we can and should do 100% of the time because fundamentally that's 
it's not only our birthright and the natural mind, but it's what uh, is the end of suffering and happiness. And what's more, everybody's trying to do it. The last question I wanted to say something about is the question that people had um, about what should I do with my partner who is not into this practice? Everybody wants to be happy. So, say into this practice, we mean again into this particular form of practice maybe. Everyone is trying to be balanced and alert and open-hearted and happy. So just as it doesn't make so much sense to me to say, I haven't practiced, we are all always practicing. Or my partner, my friend, the people around me are not into this, into practicing. Everyone is into practicing. Sometimes the form is different, but everybody wants to be happy. And it's such a good reflection for I think conditioning compassionate response to the people around us and to feeling quite like being here and doing this and re-entering our lives is the most natural thing in the world. This is just the form that we are doing. And we're really lucky to have it, I think. So let's just sit for a minute. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 16, 1996. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.